on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. If we people are in a romantic relationship to life, by which I mean if my story is a story of becoming attractive to the other side, if I am making my body attractive to the tree, if I am kissing or caressing with the way a spore lands on a leaf as my standard, and I'm actually feeling progress in that. I feel I am something of the river when I cry hard, when I lay on my back and look at the stars. I am something of the amplitude of air. If I position myself that way and feel that I'm in a romantic relationship with myself and with all of reality, I am already fulfilled by the time I even begin to move out into the sexual economy of the world. It's not that I don't have a need for companionship, but I'm already romantic. I'm already in love in a certain way. I'm already making love. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Genevieve Sophia Dao, founder of the philosophy of post-Daoism and the Mogadao practice tradition. She has been a teacher and innovator of mythosomatic practices for nearly 30 years and writes on a wide variety of spiritual, philosophical, and cultural subjects. Genevieve is also the founder of the organization The Transgender Necessity, a platform to help educate individuals and institutions with regard to the cultural necessity of transgender people. In our fantastic conversation today, we discuss how to weave the fabric of one's mythopoetic life. We explore a post-Daoist gender theory and the recognition and implication of recognizing masculinity as a theatrical spirit. We touch upon Robert Bly and the limited legacy of Iron John and come to the surprising revelation of the ghost in the machine of patriarchy. And finally, Genevieve touches upon the transgender experience as a necessary medicine for traversing these times of uncertainty as we collectively reimagine culture. Before we begin, a reminder to check out my offering titled Beyond the Podcast. This is a bi-weekly live series over Zoom that follows each new episode, where I share further on the themes and ideas we have explored. When possible, I also invite the guests on the show to answer your questions. Beyond the Podcast is available to podcast supporters. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash support to learn more. And now, enjoy my conversation with Genevieve Sophia Dow. Welcome, Genevieve Sophia Dow, to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love to begin by asking my guests to share a little of where they are in this moment, uh, geographically, spiritually. Um, anything that places the listener um, to attune to you now, if you'd be willing. That's a nice timing for me because I'm looking out from my upstairs. I'm looking out a window at a, a new 
landscape for me. Um, I just moved north of uh, Santa Fe into the countryside in a, a kind of a lush environment on a farm. And I'm learning how to farm, learning how to make my my garden and, and grow some of my own food. And there's a river, which is astonishing for New Mexico. That's rushing. It's right out my front door. It's like a football field away. And it's laced with cotton trees. And I go there. I go running every morning, oftentimes in the mountains, and come and throw myself into that river as a daily routine. And then I come back and try and do something in the garden. And so this is all new as in, as of a couple of weeks ago. And I'm exceedingly happy because of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you can, if you were asking me about my spiritual state vis-a-vis my, my geographical location, I, I've never been happier in a location. It's just absolutely marvelous. Mm. I can feel then sense the the texture of the place. That's a good word. Yeah, that's a good word. Sorry, as, as I look out, looking at texture, we have um, the the texture of the landscape is such that the river creates a riparian landscape that's really lush with huge cottonwood trees. But then the sort of traditional northern New Mexico landscape backdrops it in folds upon folds of mountains. So it is textured. You're intuitive. There's a, a new kind of texture for me because mm-hmm. of that. It's very, the rivers are like, uh, you know, sacred territories in northern New Mexico. I mean, they should be everywhere, but certainly here. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's it's nice to be asked that because it's so much a part of who I am and who I'm becoming now. I love how you responded to the question as well by describing the landscape, because I do think there's some old time um, recognition that one's own state of being is not devoid of its relationship to, to place into land. And in some ways it's somewhat a modern anomaly. I think if you ask somebody, you know, how are they doing? And they t- only talk about themselves. <laughs> That it's so often to describe, yeah, to describe how is the land doing actually, because that is a better indication in a way of how they might be. I think that's, I love that you point that out. I didn't, I wasn't self-conscious about that, but I did answer it that way, didn't I? And I think that's because already I am, um, feeling that my state of being is is absolutely inseparable. I mean, yesterday we had a magnificent storm and, um, I, I ran out in the, in the pouring rain and uh, picked cherries and actually did some transplanting of, um, some little seedlings that a dear friend had given me, uh, in the rain and, and just getting soaked like that. It's a marvelous experience. <laughs> and so I, I, I'm at the point now, I, I think maybe people get to certain points in their lives where they know what they want to surrender to. It's, you know, we have so much self-assertion and that's part of what it is to be young. You have to self-assert. And then I think a lot of us get to a point where, and I'm not speaking of this in any way in terms of passivity, and we can talk about my definitions of passivity and, and, and how they don't apply, um, to surrender. But mm. I think a lot of us get to a point where it's a question of what immensities we are surrendering to, as opposed to how we are asserting 
our little, you know, seed grain or sand grain of selves against this immensity. There's a certain humility that comes in midlife. I think that, that is characterized by, by that kind of surrender. And in this case, it's weather. It's, it's patterns of weather and m- making my body available to, to the, the sensorium of weather. That is hugely important to me. It may not be so interesting, you know, as a podcast though. I mean, people, <laughs> people, people love assertion, you know, they, you know, assertion is hot. Assertion is, is, you know, um, powerful and whatnot. And so I may, I may give a boring podcast because I'm at, at a point in my life where I'm, interested in um, assuming, in the religious sense of that word, assuming immensities unto, un, I like using that archaic language, unto myself, rather than trying to, quote, make my mark. I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, it's a different, a different quality. So I hope I don't bore the listeners because <laughs> I'm too happy. I might be too happy to make an interesting podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, for one, am not worried about that because I am very grateful that we have this time today and that you've said yes to this conversation. I first encountered your work through a good friend, Eamon Armstrong, who I understand uh, trained a little at the Mogadau Institute, of which you founded. Mm-hmm. And uh, he held two conversations, or you both collaborated on two conversations that I found utterly profound. And you know, I was going back through my notes and I mean, there was just so many, so many lines, which I feel I could just, you know, re- reflect back and say, well, what about this or what about that? And, and they would be gateways into vast territories, um, that I, any one of these could be an episode, I think. And so I'll say for me in the experience as a listener, I feel like I recognized someone at a level of adeptness with the mythopoetic, uh, that, that just the turns of phrase or the, you know, relationality between the words or the prismatic nature of, of the words mirrored in experience was so delightful. And therefore, you know, this conversation for me isn't about recreating those collaborations. I mean, how could we and why would we want to? Um, but to perhaps uh, invite some of those gateways into themes and explorations that mm-hmm. uh, are more, uh, in resonance with this podcast inquiry, which is called the mythic masculine, um, you know, which came about because of my own you know, curiosity into these two things, masculinity and, and the mythic. And I think for you, you have a particularly um, experiential and, and deep um, way of crossing borders and boundaries within these polarities, within these genders that, uh, you know, I'm just so grateful to be able to to speak to one such as you on these matters. Well, it's it's. A, I want to say, I want to pause us for a moment and say that um, it's a reflection upon you that uh, someone who presents as a as a transgender woman like me that you're having that person on a on a podcast called the Mythic Masculine um, because you don't know what I'm going to say about that. And you don't know how I'm going to, um, imagine myth, mythos in, in terms of the masculine from the point of view of a transgender woman. It shows that you're brave and innovative. And, and, um, and we also have to thank Eamon, lovely Eamon for connecting us because 
um, he's the reason that that we even begin to know each other, and uh, and, and he's been so um, intelligently vulnerable in those mm. in those those conversations, which has has been the motor behind some of the, the the juiciness of them. But in your case, again, to have me, um, you know, it's a little perilous in a certain way to have a transgender woman on a mythic masculine post. And you, you, you must trust where I'm coming from, which is really beautiful. And I think you're right too, because I have a, a, a huge view about these subjects, but I don't come from a polemical place, um, not in the least. And um, that pains me. The, the polemic is what pains me. And so I come from a place that's far 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 deeper than that but you don't know that for sure and so thank you for trusting me Mm. (laughs) thank you for uh trusting the third of of (laughs) the spirit of the conversation i feel you know is also something um that is is present or not you know i've been in conversations and i'm sure you have where that spirit of the third actually you know wasn't courted in wasn't um maybe surrendered to uh, mm-hmm. and, and may that third show up here. And perhaps I feel some of the possibilities present already. I think so. My first question around this theme of mythos in, in the mythopoetic, um, you had this line in the conversation with Eamon where if I paraphrase, we have the choice to build the mythic frame and the mythic fabric of our life every day. And, for me, this is such a important, um, maybe a way in to even understanding like, what do we, or what can the mythopoetic mean to, or to build the mythic fabric of one's life? Because I think at the culture at large, there's somewhat of an atrophied, uh, skill set, right? Around the capacity mm-hmm. to think or to speak mythically. Um, beyond, let's say, if we're just talking about the, the sort of contemporary masculine circles through the lens of, say, the hero's journey. Right, which which in some ways it stops there. Like that's the that's the one and only frame that seems available yeah. largely. And yet I feel in what you, how you speak and how I've tried to invoke on the podcast as well that it's it's much it's much more um, what's the word again this sense of texture. It feels it's much more of a of a capacity to almost see across uh, linearity, right, or to see or to weave interdimensionality in one's experience with the gods and with the spirits of place and the land and beyond. And so I'd just love to hear your take on that uh, in the way into our conversation today. Well, let me, you know, as soon as you mention that very correct link between sort of conventional conversations around um, masculinity and the hero's journey, I cringe. It's kind of like the way I cringe when phrases like the divine masculine and the divine feminine become dominant in the culture. Because if we are to be shrewd and incisive, um, we have to realize that, that, that the ego wants so readily to, to say, Yes, you know, to be, in this case, to be a man is to go out, you know, this Joseph Campbellian, you know, idea to go out and to slay, to slay things that are problematical and then to come back transformed because of the awesomeness and the, 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 the catharsis that happened in those slayings and to come back into the community and then serve and be a force of resonance with the other world because of the journey. 
and it's that's so i mean this that can't be wrong that can't be wrong as far as something that the soul has to do for every gender you know it, and it certainly can't be masculine more than it is feminine in you know in quote unquote um and yet it's also not i love that you're already disquieted by it because it's not it's a reductive frame for what mytho poetry actually is and it feeds into the ego it's very easy to imagine a challenge i mean look at all of the hollywood films i mean it's not it's not like the hero's journey is a new thing <laughs> the hero's journey is only is the only thing i mean that's what we have in every single blockbuster kind of film and so it's not that interesting in that way what is interesting then which is what you're asking me what i think is interesting is the notion that that there's nothing but mytho poetry actually that there's nothing and by what i mean by that is that the the personality we have a personality we have a persona and the more that persona is soaked in the understanding that that we are embodying in every single action that we do we are not ourselves but that we are literally spiritualized through forces and ways of being that are far beyond our personality and the marriage of our personality with those immensities is the only thing that makes life meaningful mm-hmm. so so if if i just told you that i i run in the mountains and then i run to the river and i throw myself in the river naked and the cold water rushes over me what's my mythical poetry my mythical poetry is that i have a hermaphroditic body and there i am with my phallus and my breasts naked in the water and i'm hearing the cars in the distance go by and distantly wondering if a bunch of people are going to get out of one of those cars and come to the river and see mm. me and i see myself i mythopoeticize myself as necessary on this earth in that naked form in that nature and i go back to ovid in my mind i go back to the metamorphoses and i find uh, uh correlations to transformations that are unacceptable to to contemporary life and so i have the wind blowing through the trees my hair soaked in cold mountain water my hermaphroditic body in the wilderness and i am imagining the way in which i connect to the forces of nature as who i am and to the history of the imagination through someone like ovid's metamorphosis and that's my morning i don't have a morning as genevieve sophia dowd taking a bath i have a morning only of that and and everyone else has their own version of that even if you're going to work with a starbucks mug in your hand you have to do what i just said i do you have to feel the faces on 5th avenue flowing by you that are all contorted and sad and some of them joyous and some of them in love and you have to take your elevator up to your board meeting and you have to sit there and how do you accommodate all of the faces that you saw on the subway in that nature and how do you speak in such a way that you justify your sensitivity in that room in that meeting who are you actually being animated by every moment of every day 
And that's a mythopoetic life. I could, I want to be sort of hard and harsh and say I could care less about a quote, hero's journey. That is the hero's journey. That configuration, like who are you between your subway stop and when you open your mouth at your meeting, that is the hero's journey because it is either a capitulation to conditioning for conventional modes of success and acceptance, or it is a determination to to stay within the fabric of your own callings and to make that fabric contribute to the environments that you've chosen, but to have that fabric be completely saturated in mythos, which means forces that are not necessarily at the beck and call of your ego's needs. So you might have to mess up that meeting if there's too much melancholy from the faces of the subway. You might have to say, hi, everyone. Listen, I saw too many homeless people this morning. Let me take a break. We'll start in 10 minutes because I need to go mourn. I need to look out the window and collect myself because I'm not sure what it is that I have to say about um, selling this particular product vis-a-vis what's going on in the world. And of course, everyone in the board meeting is going to look at you like you're crazy. But then if you're strong enough and you believe enough in the world, you'll come back and say something actually really important and maybe become a better leader. But you won't be that if you're just trying to be your personality and your ego as a great leader, if you forgot the moods that happened to you on the way. And that's what a mythopoetic life is, is incorporation of the moodiness into what you call yourself, taking the consequences of that in the marketplace, in the consumer world, in the romantic and sexual economies, taking the consequences of the power of the depth of your moodiness. That is what it is to be mythopoetic. Hmm. Thank you for demonstrating or practicing exactly what you are speaking to in your describing of that journey and, and the sensual sensate relationality, I felt dimensions open and, and be illuminated in a way that I'm, I'm just recognizing again, how, how much modernity tries to flatline Mm -hmm. experience, right? Tries to flatline it into sort of a literal literality, if that's even a word uh, that, robs this uh, present interdimensionality to existence and in some ways even tries to combat against it and saying, well, you you know, if you in, incorporate or, or to invoke or to infuse this kind of grandiosity, right? So that's, that's the, perhaps the judgment saying, well, it's, you just in, you're putting it on something that is inherently not meaningful in some sense. Right. And, and I'm just drawing a little bit from my other teacher, uh, Stephen Jenkinson, who has just talked about this, um, recognition that meaning is crafted in that it, it's not hidden. Like the world doesn't hide meaning from you, but that doesn't mean it, it gives itself away without, uh, a, a sort of dynamic willingness on behalf of the participant or on behalf, on behalf of the, the willingness to, yeah, to court those mysteries into one's being and in the world. And so I see that in what you're doing. Like there's a, it's not a, it's not a vending machine, you know, to, oh. to, to arrive at and say, well, where is it? You know, give it to me, but you're bringing so much to it. And it reminds me of another line you said in the conversation with Eamon, that we uh, are responsible to become attractive to the invisible world. Oh, that's one of, that's one of the most guiding forces 
in my own life as a as a teacher i'm a i'm a reluctant teacher because when you when you tell me words like that what happens in my body when you tell me phrases like that when you give them back to me and that's a phrase that i teach with a lot when that's given back to my body that's like a gauntlet in the moment that you tell it to me mm. that says genevieve you know isn't that so and um what does that mean that's one of the most important i'm so glad you brought that up that's one of the most important things because there is a certain turning away from the immediacy of 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 life in order to actually participate deeply in life and in that turning away what i mean by that is um what does it mean to live and i and i'm speaking very personally and that we kind of started off the conversation this way what does it mean to live to to try and aspire to move your body the way the cottonwoods move in the along the river and to actually imagine that i am inadequate to the heron's flight and that it's not enough for me to not want to be them to not want to be them and to not want them to notice me like when i'm doing my qigong forms are the herons noticing me am i becoming more familiar to them i think i am and and so when i say turn away from life what i mean is that that it's not a question of who's attracted to us or how well we're doing in certain status circles first it's a question of are the forces of the the world the natural world and the voices that come from the invisible world do they like us do they are they attracted to us how you like how how i'm speaking right now is are the poets that have cared for language in such a way that we still have it available the vowels and the consonants does language like me does language is language fond of me is is wind attracted to my walking my mo- my my the way of moving my body do the stars um feel a certain comfort in landing on my open mouth as i look up at them like these are questions that are the deeply mythopoetic questions and to animate oneself first toward those things instead of toward god knows you know how many likes or whatever you're getting on a certain feed or or what you know what people are saying about you but but you know to actually motivate yourself through that through the sense that that i want i want to create a being that doesn't offend eternity mm. i want to create a being that doesn't offend eternity i will sacrifice i'm speaking both as genevieve now but as a, a kind of ideal universal i i would sacrifice all of the material 
and egoic compensations in order to be appreciated by eternity in some way, to feel that. And that's why the modern world is so dry, because we have been so colonized by conventional forms of ambition through media and through consumerism, through the colonization of the imagination toward productivity, that that what I'm saying to a lot of listeners may feel insane. May re- I mean, to, to actually live the way... I do live the way I'm talking about. I don't know anything else. I don't have a skill set that helps me to survive in a, a more normative atmosphere. And that's my fate, right? That's my fate. So I'm amazed that you're talking to me. But... But I think the line between sanity and insanity needs to be troubled because to be really mythopoetic is to be so different than the way people live normally that most people's normative uh, consciousness will imagine it to be insane. I mean, if I say the goal of my day is to become a heron and the goal of my body is to sway like a cottonwood and that I'm satisfied at the end of the day if I have those sensations, that I've had a great day, um, that is not acceptable in this day and age, but it was acceptable in the, in antiquity. And, and that, you know, I, I always bring up when I'm teaching about mythopoetry, I always bring up that scene in the Odyssey, in Homer's Odyssey, which is one of the guiding lights of the, um, the moral force that I have to live the way I'm talking about. It's in the Odyssey that gives me the strength. And the scene is that Odysseus is, has been traveling for 10 years from the war in Troy. And it's so beautiful to be on a, on a, on a podcast called The Mythic Masculine and to have that analogy come up because, I mean, my God, that would be the central figure for good and bad. I have a lot of criticism of that uh, telling as well. But in this case, I have only praise and, and Odysseus gets washed up on the shore and Athena, who loves Odysseus, um, has placed Nausicaa, the king's daughter, um, washing clothing on the same beach because uh, she's going to take, uh, Nausicaa is going to take Odysseus into safety, into the king and whatnot. And uh, Athena makes Odysseus very beautiful. He's been racked by grief and by traveling and he's a mess, but Athena casts a spell and makes him beautiful. And he sees Nausicaa and he almost falls in love with Nausicaa, which is, of course, Athena's plan. And... um and he says, my God, you are so beautiful. You are so beautiful. And then he pauses. And this is the moment that I, that has given me so much strength in my life. He pauses and said, you are almost as beautiful as a tree I once saw. Mm. And he describes something of that tree. But again, in our day and age, that would be insane, right? To look at a beautiful man or a beautiful woman or a beautiful non-binary person and to say, you know, you are really magnificent. You're almost as beautiful as a tree that I once saw. And he's not being facetious. He's being absolutely sincere. So he'd rather be with the tree than Nausicaa. He'd rather look at the tree than Nausicaa. He's not doing it as a come online. He's not doing it as an ironic um uh, pedestal, uh, mm. uh, displaying his intelligence or his, his irony. He's doing it because he's absolutely sincere. And that sincerity gives me strength to live the way I'm talking about. Wow. You spoke of surrender earlier in our conversation and what, what might be surrender to. 
And I'm curious how that has shown up in your story in mm. initially growing up in the world of, of masculinity and, and how was that, you know, playing out some of these constrictions or some of these oppressions or uh, inaccessibilities to the ways in which you're able to speak and relate to the world now. And this question of trans and my understanding of trans is into, to go across or to cross, to cross between perhaps. Mm -hmm. And so these to me are sort of jostling for, uh, for attention in this moment Mm -hmm. to further illuminate, um, this relationality to, for me, even this question is coming up around masculinity. Like, how might we apply the mythopoetic lens to masculinity as in, as in what, what is masculinity or what is femininity in light of this understanding? All right. Yes. From one who has lived in quote between realms and through the realms. Yes. Those are, you know, first of all, I think I might have a decent amount to say about it, but I want to start off my response by saying that I, I live the questions and um and it, the irony of that is i have had to develop very extensive gender theories and i've had to revise um inherited taoist notions of yin and yang in order to survive and then recently from those revisions i've had to create a post taoist gender theory that can house someone like me mm. um and so the paradox is that I've literally innovated vast systems of thought around these questions, but I only ask more questions from within those vast elaborations. And I need to be honest about that, 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 that I am both a determined and a totally indeterminate creature in that way. And, um, and so whatever I assert, in terms of this answer, needs to be understood as enthrall to, meaning a student of, meaning second to my actual physical and spiritual and sexual and psychological and emotional experience. And that is my guide more than any theory, even my own, even my own. So, so what I would say is that, um, it's too much for this podcast to try and introduce to you and to listeners the radical inversions and revisions that I have had to make with yin and yang as essences. But I'll just say that they're almost oppositional to the inherited Taoist notions. Meaning what? Meaning that um, the the notions of the yang as being sure and confident and and powerful and and bright and light and quick... Um, these, these notions to me are in my version of the yang and post Taoist understanding of the yang. The yang is, is, um, only yang when all of those kind of confidences lose their own sense of self-possession and become deep vulnerabilities that don't stop. So that the, the, the heart of the yang, uh, of the true yang is actually insecurity and incertitude and vulnerability, meaning the unknowingness of not knowing whether or not something is going to work or function. And yet the continuation of the will within those uncertainties is how I define the young, which is completely different than 
the sort of standard notion that the yang is confident. What I'm saying is that the yang is actually the way confidence is ruined by the awesomeness of the reach. And in the awesomeness of the reach, there's a helplessness and a hopelessness that is actually the spirit of the yang. That is not what people usually understand as the yang. So I've inverted that entirely. And I think I need to say that as we move into these conversations, because then what if, since we're talking about masculinity, what is masculinity then in relationship to that essence is the question. And, and, and then I need to go on to post-Taoist gender theory in a lightning moment. I mean, I can't elaborate it. This would be a, a three or four hour podcast if I could actually share it properly. But I will say that, that masculinity to me is what I call, and this is a huge chapter in the book that I'm, that I'm writing on the subject, is what I call a theatrical spirit. By which I mean that, that it is a necessary mythopoetic engagement within culture. But it is separate from the yang essence that I just talked about or almost entirely separate. And that's where I begin to question things, you know, because I'm not sure exactly where the, the, the one and the other do not meet or do meet. It would be so clean if I could say they absolutely don't meet. And I, and, and yet the, the theatrical spirit is in a indeterminate relationship with the essence, but the essence is not the puppet of the gender. That's what, that's the important thing. Like you, in my view, and you as a cis male are, are not any less capable of a yin myth, mythopoetic experience in post-Taoist understanding than a quote cis or, you know, a, a natal born cis woman. You're not. And that those essences should be the guiding forces of your life, not how to be a man in gender, in culture. That, that's, that's what I think gets cut short is that the talks about gender or how to be a woman, what, and that's where the divine masculine and the divine feminine come in as sort of these, these, these frameworks of how to be a man or be a woman. And, and I'm less interested in that. I'm interested in how does a person participate in my definitions of post Taoist yin and yang First and foremost, woman, non-binary, intersex, male, whatever you are, that relationship of confidence becoming insecurity, but not losing the will, that is a universal human experience. And then from that place, what is the animation within your particular organism of the theatrical spirit of masculinity? What is that? And where are you being dulled by convention and where are you in new territory that is thrilling to the very essence of the unknown that's where i'd like to complicate the waters and so does that make sense and it's, it's a lot to, to dump yeah. on on and, and because i've just like inverted two thousand years of yin <laughs> and yang theory and on top of that i've said that the the that masculinity is actually a theat quote this is my language around it is a I've had to come up with this language because it doesn't exist. Masculinity is a theatrical spirit that is an actor within those other vast essences of which we all participate. And it's that relationship between the theatrical spirit that is an actor within the eternal essences that is indeterminate and so exciting. I really love it. You uh, walked us around that again, because I really wanted to highlight that because um, the line you said here too was um, the essence 
is not the puppet of the gender. Something like that. And, yes. and I want to highlight that again for the listener because again, I don't know if they've, if I hope you get it and I, <laughs> and I want to get it again because that's interesting because it allows for, I mean, you know, let's say colloquially, I find often in circles, people have conversations. They'll say, well, there's gender and then there's, um, the sort of internal polarities, right? And often they do use yin and yang as a mm-hmm. sort of escape from having to use gender, right? Because sometimes the, like a gendered sense that, the, you know, um, I have an inner masculine and inner feminine. And oftentimes I get into circles where people say, well, why use gender at all? Like, it's just not useful, right? But just use yin and yang. Yes. Um, but you've further complicated it now with, you know, how you've said in a way that I actually find really profound. But then also to say that the masculinity within, maybe I'll say it like this, the question, how, what does it mean to be a man? Or, or what is the best man to be? Or these kinds of questions to me are sort of they're they're modern questions devoid of a relationality of a matrix of meaning like i guess that's what i'm I'm recognizing right that the it, it makes no sense because you might say well what does it mean to to be a theatrical spirit of masculinity in this moment in this context yes that to me now right starts to actually ground it in in those relationships and so i'm struck by something that i feel like i've touched on in other conversations too which is present here which is I feel the culture at large is so uh, wounded around gender. And, and you, please, you can, you can speak to this uh, as well. Um, I think it's so wounded around gender because of power dynamics, because of, you know, the, the toxicity in different ways um, that it's, it's almost like it's the, the response to it is to try to seek another universal to supplant a dysfunctional universality. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I've sort of arrived at. And I feel that for me, I've, I've seen that too and be like, well, wait a second, that feels like it's going too far again. It feels like it's trying to say, well, gender is nothing. It's it's just a construct or it's all power dynamics. Uh, we have to throw it out entirely. You decide what you want to be. Like, I, I feel like there's in some ways that the pendulum feels like it swings too far away. Yeah. And so I would just love to hear your, you know, what what, what comes up for you when I say that too, because I do feel like you're speaking to it in a way that, it just provides a lot more possibility, I feel, um, versus a kind of, yeah, trying to construct another universality that is, is again, becomes a sort of impossible uh, standard or, or performance or, or concretized definition or description, right? Divine masculine, divine feminine, which I cringe at often when I hear too. Well, I love, I love your response because I can feel your suggestibility to nuance and, compl- and, and complexity in the response. I think one of the problems that we're, one of the problems that we're dealing with now is that we have the most extraordinary gender crisis, perhaps, and by crisis, I mean a positive, beautiful thing. We have the most extraordinary gender crisis, perhaps in the history of, of collective human consciousness. And at the same time, the people that are having to navigate that have been reduced by the current society in their imaginative power to be certain, to be um, consumeristically certain. Like if you, if you look at the way politicians are taught to speak, right? The first thing that they have to do is to be absolutely sure. And the first thing that you have to do if you're selling something in the world, whether it's a, a, a new program or a new app or a new food product or whatever 
you, you must be determined, not indeterminate. And so we are in a real, if I can be a little bit crass just to drive the point home, we're in a real historical mindfuck when it comes to that. Because the, the dilemma that we're being given, we are not equipped because of the reduction of the imagination to actually deal with it very well. And so we want certitude. And what I hear in you is a, is an innate resistance to absolutism on this issue that I do share. And which is why I have had to come up with this post Taoist gender theory where the theatrical spirit is not thrown out. It's not thrown out. I, I would be a lot, it would be so easy, God, and it would be so easy for me to be a hard line theorist. And I'd probably be famous for doing it if I laid out a new universality on this question and said, this is the way I think it is. And this is the way that we can imagine it now. We can break entirely free, all of us from the repression, from, from colonization, from all of the history of, of the divorcement of the variety of the human being by blasting it away from gender entirely. And here's how we can do it. I think. I'm actually capable intellectually of, 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 of speaking that way and of creating such a structure. But it would be a lie. It would be a lie because then why did I need to surrender to Genevieve? Why, why did I need to, why when I go to a store now and someone says, can I help you, ma'am? Why does the electricity move through me as a novel potential of my being that I did not have when someone said, hi, sir, can I help you? Why am I blasted open with new mythopoetic possibilities? I can't lie about that. I can't lie. I can't lie about the fact that when I wear a dress and move through the world and feel my body moving, even within its internal powers, of a lifetime of cultivation of that body, I am free and more myself because of that theatrical spirit. Now, in my case, like in all of our cases, it gets complicated because I have a body that's hermaphroditic within that dress. And then I have to navigate that immense complication in terms of the mythopoetry. But the point in terms of your question is, no, I, I refuse to not, that the term that I have come up with that is so useful in this, and I write huge chapters on this, is justified ontology. That's my term for honesty. Like, I can't have a theory that doesn't justify my ontology. And if I am more filled with potential because of my theatrical spirit, then I am in a dialogue with that theatrical spirit and the essences. And that dialogue is fundamentally insoluble within an absolute definition. And I have to surrender. You talked about surrender. That's my surrender, that I have to surrender to that dialogue. And, and I have to let that conversation happen. So if I am, just in terms of your listeners, let me just mythopoeticize. If I am trying to be a man in this culture, then I must be in relationship between the theatrical spirit of masculinity as a theatrical spirit, but as a necessary tool for understanding how the essences play upon my particular organism in this particular time and day and age. And that theater becomes my honesty. 
but I have to keep deconstructing my conditioning if I'm going to stay alive in the indeterminacy. So that's the problem because we're not equipped for that conversation because of the reasons that I've said. Everything around us is telling us, you better be sure. You better know exactly who you are. I know who the hell I am. Who are you? And I am successful because I know who I am, etc. What I'm suggesting is that every day, and I'm going to put it in terms of the male gender because that's the topic here, every day a man has to get up and be vulnerable to the dialogue between his theatrical spirit and the essences, both yin and yang, that are moving through him, that are outside of gender. So he's inside and outside of gender. He exists in gender, and gender is a lie. Gender is a lie, and gender is a truth. And and in, within that, we have to live the 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 dialectic itself and make meaning from that place. Everything else seems to be a lie to me, or way too easy, because of my own life. I mean, like. I've, I've chosen she from a life of being organized as he. I've chosen, why? It, it, there's no way that I can blast into a universality honestly with you or with anyone without saying that, that I have always been animated in this way and to be able to live it is a great grace to me. And I will live it, but I also won't sacrifice the parts of me that, that, that do not feel that, 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 in other words, my theatrical spirit as a woman, I mean, listen to my voice. I haven't, I haven't had surgery on my voice. There's incredible surgeries that, that can take the vocal cords and shorten them and make, make a high, make a voice that's, that's up here. It's, you know, it's a beautiful, a beautiful, um, recognizably female voice, but I haven't done that because my, my theatrical spirit is a, is a deep voiced woman and I don't see it as, uh, um, a young quality. I see it as, in that sense of the, of, of the young and the sort of essential sense. I see it as connecting to the earth and the base notes of the base of rivers and the bottom of the ocean, which is a deep in quality. And I don't feel the, the need at this point to change it. You see? So that's my negotiation. That's where I have to wake up every morning and say, what is the relationship between my theatrical spirit as a, as a, as a woman and the fact that I have chosen to keep my phallus, the fact that I have chosen to have a deep voice, the fact that I still train my body in certain ways that are historically aligned with masculine lethality. Right? What does that mean? That's my conversation. And I'm in that conversation and I can't jettison myself out of it to get clear every day so that I can say to people, I know exactly who I am. Thank you very much. This brings me to curiosity around desire, which is something that you've spoken to. And the line was, what you desire is trying to lead you to who you're supposed to become. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm struck by the sense of, of masculinity. Let's just using that uh, uh, example in the dominant culture. Feels like it's a it's a process of blinders on what is desirable uh, because it's it's in some ways meant to to be corralled into a very narrow band of you know quote something attractive. And if we're talking about the sort of trespass of men against women, which is fairly ubiquitous in culture at large, um, that there's this certain, for me, it strikes me that it's the narrowing of desire into a sense that that can only come from this other being called, you know, a woman, let's say. Um, and, and the way that 
uh, you're speaking to is this almost like to be able to remove the blinders to actually see uh, or to experience a sensitivity and an access to, and, and for me, my curiosity is, is, is that in some ways an expanded uh, possibility of accessing quote, the feminine um, that if we're just talking about men who are or cis men, right. That are often again, within these blinders only seek that sense of embodiment or, or even the, the permission of desire within the narrow band, which then in some ways creates a sort of addictive, um, it's dynamic. And I know you've talked about this idea that the, the perpetration, uh, or the predation, uh, of the yang or masculinity for me, I, this is kind of what I see as the undercurrent. It's almost like if, if, uh, a man is taught that, that, that thing that they need that, or that source, right. The feminine source, let's say is only found within that particular expression or that narrow band in the other, um, that it becomes this, uh, craving, right. Or this hungry ghost. And I link this now to another line that deeply struck me too, was that you said something like the root of predation is a lack of auto eroticism. That's, I was about to go there. It's interesting that you brought that line back to me because I have, of course, have forgotten that line, but I was about to talk about auto eroticism. Can I, can I do that? Please do. Yeah. Because I do think it's such a powerful, I mean, it's, it is so much of what I see as, as the missing, um, internal bridge. I, I just can really feel the, um, the depth of your thinking around these issues. And, um, and I just want to pause the conversation to say that, that the third thing is here because of your own indeterminacy and your, your lack of willingness to capitulate to easy notions that are really sort of machismo moves on the one hand or on the other hand, impotent notions where, where the, the, the uh, the, the, the desire to try to understand what it is to be, uh, inside a gender is, is jettisoned all the way to, to nothing. And I think I just want to pause and say, I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, now when I, we could easily, easily talk about the disgust of predation from a, um, from a, a sort of, obvious point of view. And that is a very worthwhile conversation. Um, but I, I like to start so far deep into what might be the mythopoetic causes of something like that. And I think when I say autoeroticism, I'm not speaking about a, um, a self fetishizing of one's sexuality by any means. And it's important that the listeners understand that I'm actually speaking spiritually. Everything that I've been saying to you about mythopoetry is synonymous with the phrase auto-eroticism. You know, so I, it's the relationship that one has to oneself. And basically what I would describe it as is romance. That, that if, if we, if we people, are in a romantic relationship to life. By which I mean, if my story is a story of becoming attractive to the other side, if I am making my body attractive to the tree, if I am kissing or caressing with the way a spore lands on a leaf as my standard, as my standard, 
and I'm actually feeling progress in that. I feel I am something of the river. When I cry hard, I am something of the river. When I lay on my back and look at the stars, I am something of the amplitude of air. If I position myself that way and feel that I'm in a romantic relationship with myself and with all of reality, then it is impossible for me to be identified by the way in which I am appreciated by a very defined group of people called woman in, in, the, in the analogy that you're bringing up, right? Because again, we're talking about the male and masculinity. And, and so what then happens? What then happens is that my sensorium, one's sensorium, one's organism, one's body is naturally more honest about attraction because I quote, I'm not again speaking the universal I, I am already fulfilled by the time I even begin to move out into the sexual economy of the world. It's not that I don't have a need for companionship, but I'm already romantic. Again, speaking as the, as the universal I, right? We understand that. Um, I'm already in love in a certain way. I'm already making love. Like when I talk about going to the river in the morning, I'm already having deep sensual experiences with the sunlight on my body and the current. I'm already making love. I am empowered by forces that are beyond the reduction of the, of the simplistic sexual economy. And so one is, is so fully defined by immensity that the standard tropes of domination and um, the insistence upon one's sexuality upon someone else is not even, in the root sense of the word, considerable. It's not something that is actually considerable because it doesn't make any sense. One is already too fulfilled. And then desire, as opposed to craving, desire then is the voice of the soul that says, what is the unique attractions of my life? Like what, what am I actually drawn to? Not what is the culture telling me to be drawn to, but what am I actually drawn to? And then that can become various kinds of commitments and sexualities. But the journey there has to come through the way I'm talking about it, or the society has, um, well, let me just say it to make people smile. The culture has you by the balls. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, right? The culture tells you what to desire. That's my resistance to pornography is that I don't want anybody telling me what to desire. People, you know, I am the last person on earth that would be called prudish. I am extremely uh, open to the, the miracle of the human sensorium and to, to living in a way that is transcendent of the reductive morals uh, through the history of colonization and all kinds of things. I am a wide open spirit. But at the same time, I refuse to be um, told what to desire and to have my central nervous system um, colonized by the intensity of sexuality through tropes of behavior and sounds and body types that are telling me what it is that I must desire. And so I, 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 I in a warrior-like way, I, I am completely disinterested in those kind of manipulations because I'm too interested in what I actually desire, what my soul, which is my body, desires. And that comes from the, the 
autoerotic relationship to life that I'm describing that, that we need to understand that we are instruments of sensitivity across the board in all kinds of ways. And we are not fulfilled until that instrumentation becomes skillful and virtuoso, meaning my job is to become as sensitive as I possibly can so that I know what I desire. And this is a total inversion on standard masculinity where one is is conditioned to not be sensitive so that one can be a vehicle for the conditioning of society. I mean, it's, it's brutal. I mean, men are targeted. Women, everyone is targeted, but we're on a male podcast, a male topic podcast. Men are targeted so ruthlessly that they're helpless before pornography. They're helpless before, you know, expensive cars and, and they're helpless before huge biceps and they're helpless before, you know, uh, all kinds of things and, and, and their emotional lives are, are often tarnished and tattered because they've been robbed of, of the mythopoetry of autoeroticism and told that their, that their feelings are, are going to put them lower down on the sexual economy chain and make them less desirable. You know, it's, 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 it's actually quite tragic. And so what I, what I would say is that, that sensitivity is the, is the mother of true power and not power in a conventional sense, but the power to actually claim one's life as one's own. I mean, how does a man, again, speaking because of the topic, how does a man know what he desires if he doesn't know his own body's tenderness? Right? If he's just a machine of the culture, it's like a ridiculous, tragic cog of the culture. And then the advertisement comes out, right? And shows the right kind of woman and the right kind of car and the right kind of suit and the right kind of job. And he's just like a gerbil. Ian, he's just a gerbil. He's a, he's a freaking gerbil that is just like Pavlovian gerbil that barks at the right moment when that advertisement comes across him. But why is he available to that? He's available to that only because he hasn't romanticized himself and he hasn't made himself an exquisite instrument of sensation so that he's actually dull when he's having sex with a woman that looks correct for the culture but is not actually feeling him and seeing him and loving him. He's actually unaroused, you know, and then he can begin the journey of what it is to be his own person. But what a journey it is, right? What a challenge that is, considering all the forces that are destroying his sensitivity. I'm touched by that and how, you know, I recognize so many of the patterns that have played themselves out in my life. And I recognize patterns in other men where there's almost this, um, yeah, this deep longing to be sensitive to the world and to feeling and yet the the pathway towards feeling in that regard in a culture which increasingly essentially needs to get louder and more bold and you know more msg and salt and artificiality uh to to break through those levels of numbness to feel something when i think like you're pointing out that the irony actually is that it's it's not um, amp it up to feel more. It it feels like what you're saying too is is you know amp it down to yes. actually re, to yes. resensitize to a level of of um, 
yeah, minimalistic sensation actually means something then. And I feel like, yeah, the paradigm is caught in the numbness actually calls for more trying to bust through it, right. To dominate even more, to even feel anything. And, yeah. and, the, and it's the opposite. But let's be a little careful with minimalism though. I mean, I understand exactly the way in which you're turning the thought, but I think the initial response is to minimize the volume, mm-hmm. but that turns into its own immensity, its own manifold, rich, not necessarily minimalistic, because I don't want to go with the idea that the only way to confront the volume of culture is to become a sort of classic Zen, um, you know, is to sort of become minim- minimalist in, 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 in everything. I, I'm not a minimalist in that way. And so the, what I'm saying is that the, that sensitivity births its own ecology of rich, multifarious terrain that is not necessarily minimalistic because that's a trope that a lot of people use against contemporaneity. I'm going to just get quiet. I'm going to shut off everything because it's killing me. But what they don't have is the education of a new kind of amplitude, which is Mm. based on the, on the, the sensorium and trusting the sensorium, which becomes another flower and fauna that, that is as rich or much richer than the superimposed volumes that come on. So I just want to make sure that we don't fall into a, um, you know, a kind of zenning out of the volume of life in order to deal with it. And that's not where I come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for that clarification. And um, in my sense too, the, the dialing down, in some way, like you said, then allows for the, I don't know, the specificity and the, and the richness yes. that is there. Yes. And, and I, I mean, Mogadao from my outside perspective seems to be, um, really engaged with these practices of, of this, you know, capacity to make send to tap into the sensoria, I feel is, and you can yes. correct me, but yeah, that's what it feels like. And, and, and then in that context now, I feel like it makes a lot of sense. Uh, in, ironically, um, in, in what those skills are in a culture, which it's not a given perhaps that one is able to have that adeptness with sensitivity. I'd say maybe certainly not in the culture at large. I feel when, yeah, it, it just tends to get louder and louder. Um, mm-hmm. but, but perhaps in there is a natural state of, of, you know, uh, youthfulness. And I mean, I have a young son, right? He's two and a half and, you know, his capacity. I mean, I'm amazed that he always knows where the moon is, which is mm. actually blows, blows mm. my mind. Right. Even the sliver mm-hmm. will be outside in dusk and he'll be like the moon there, you know, and point to yes. it. And I'll be like, yes. that's incredible. And I love that. See, that's, that's it. The, the, one of the things that I try to do in my own life and try to impart in my teaching is to, to live as purely as a child, but within the awesome complexity of the sophisticated challenges of, of adulthood, that what is the skill set that enables us, right, to, to be that sensitive, but without becoming infantile? Instead, using that sensitivity to actually have a more sophisticated relationship to, to life itself and to the challenges of being uh, a fully flourishing human being. And if I can go back and, and maybe say something that might be a little more incisive about our topic, speaking to identified males, that this notion of sensitivity, what I have, what I have 
seen and witnessed in, in terms of, we can call it a sort of conventional male attitude towards sensitivity, is that it's actually really good men trying to become capable of sensitiveness for other people. And I think this is a tremendous failure in the power of, let's just use the, let, let me allow myself to use the word, which is masculinity. I think that's a failure in the power of masculinity. Men seem to believe that the journey towards sensitivity is still a goal-oriented journey that makes them better men for other people. Like, I want, I'm, quote, I'm a good man, I love my wife, I want to become sensitive enough to understand what she's going through. I'm a, I'm a, a noble man, I want to understand my husband better, and I want to be there for him, I want to love him better, and so I need to become more sensitive to him. And, you know, this kind of conversation is very popular among contemporary, among really good contemporary men. And I think, it's important for some of us who have perspectives, especially from a woman's point of view, who has also actually lived in masculine circles, it might be incumbent upon me to speak to that because not it's a unique experience, not a totally unique experience, but a relatively unique experience. And... And I see a tremendous tragedy in that attitude towards sensitivity because once again, it divorces the man from his actual thonic relationship to the earth, to his actual heart, to his actual emotions. He is not the subject. Instead, he is the tool, a consumeristic tool to make a marriage work, a consumeristic tool to be a more contemporary man, to be a more exceptional man, to be the divine masculine man, right? Like, what's the goal again? How can I perform better? And I don't mean sexually necessarily, but how can I perform sensitivity better, right? And and what what is missing is the loneliness of not actually being the emotion, being the instrument yourself, being the subject. When I teach sexuality workshops, I always comment on the fact that that there's a heteronormative dance in sexuality, which is pitiful, which is that the male has like, you know, one or two or three sounds that he makes, and he's like a mule providing the service, while the woman is enacting a whole orchestra of thonic and mythopoetic um, natural behavior. And good sex is the man doing the providing and the woman enacting this immensity. That's, quote, good heteronormative sex. And they've both decided that that's what that is. And and if we use that as an analogy to what I'm saying about sensitivity itself, the man is not the subject of his own feeling. He is performing an action upon, in this case, the heteronormative case, upon the woman. And then she is, is enacting the spirits of her immensity. And, and they're calling that harmony. Instead, the, the, the man needs to be encouraged into his own sensorium so that he's embodying equal measures of the thonic that, 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 that his partner is. And he's not dependent upon her demonstrations of nature. 
in order to satisfy himself as a successful lover. He's not dependent upon her enactment of great nature underneath his prowess, underneath his service, underneath his missionary service, you know, or his, or his mouth service, right? And in the same way, if we follow my analogy, men are divorced from the actual experience of their hearts, from the actual experience of their emotions in the service of friendships or or, or, or ego goals of what it is to be like, you know, the right man for 2021. They're divorced from their feelings and they're always weakened. How should I be? Tell me how to be. Tell me how I can work on this. I need to work on my emotional intelligence. I need to work on my ability to listen. I need to work on my ability to empathize as if testosterone is doing this willy nilly to this particular group of people, which is a lie which is an absolute lie. I know it quite personally as a lie. And, and, and it's a capitulation to culture in the name of some hormonal difference. No, those men just haven't been taught that they are the subject of nature. They are not the arbitrators of nature. And, and maybe this happens because there is a deep shame of the way in which the history of the patriarchy has abused nature. And so, the best men feel like they can only be tools. They can only get better at performances rather than embodying nature itself and all of its terror. But I would say to the contemporary male, get over that. Get over that, man. Get over that and, and start to arrogate. The word arrogate means take back unto yourself. Start to arrogate the actual irrational forces that are yours and stop projecting them onto your women so that they have to perform them for you. Hmm. I would love to continue this thread. Um, we because, can. Yeah, yeah. Because there's something, I mean, I recognize this too as well, where, uh, and maybe this plays out in this, again, this sort of neo-tantric um, it does. Articula articulation, yes, of, you know, men are the Shiva and the unchanging and the observer and Shakti is the yes. know, wildness and the energy. And, and then, yes. of course, there's those who say, well, you know, and both of those energies are in, you know, all genders. And so you can dance between them. And, but I still feel like what you're saying is there's something about this, this reclamation or, I mean, I, I really appreciate the word remembering, right? To, to bring back together. Um, to almost rejoin those those bio pathways to those locations in oneself that um, have been cut off or, or atrophied, and and again I go back to that sense of sensitivity, and even myself, you know, it's been a lot of work. Even you know, somebody says, "So how are you doing?" You know, or how, "What are you feeling?" And it's actually been I remember a while back too, where. I literally could feel nothing. Like, and this is a common thing. Robert Bly talks about this in Iron John. I know. I remember right? it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he would say, you know, men will say. It's not there. It's not there. Nothing's there. You know, there's nothing there. Yeah. And of course mm -hmm. there is in that sense, right? That it is in the deep, deep. And he also uses this word chthonic. And, uh, and I would love for you to, I mean, I know somewhat of the definition, but I love in this context, what do you mean in, in this, um, arrangement that you've generated? Well, Let's, let's talk about that experience of the, of many, many males of what Bly talks about in Iron John, um, that there's nothing there. And of course, his solution to that, as you very well know, is grief. His solution is, is the passage of grief to open up 
the, he calls it the male mode of feeling is grief. That's what he says. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very thankful for Robert Bly, very respectful. You know, people like to bash Robert Bly. People like to bash everyone that, <laughs> that, that is brave enough to, to, to go out on a limb and try to address something, mm-hmm. you know, that, that is, that is a wound because they're, they're going to, they're going to create more wound by doing that. They're going to create a mess. And, and Balai has created something, but Balai has created something of a mess in some ways. Um, but I, I love his contribution. I love his attempt and he's essential. I just want to say that. Um, but having said that, um, I think that is a reduction on mythopoetry. The idea that the male mode of feeling is grief. I, I resist that. I resist that. And I think that's not true. I think that's a cultural, um, the, 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 the sort of denial of pain has created the need for men to grieve. But that is not, as Bly thinks, the essential male mode of feeling. That is a cultural phenomenon that is fairly, um, codifiable within historical circumstances that we can look at. And I don't think it's like, because he has this sort of essentialist idea that, that that's the way in which men feel, which is incredibly reductive. What about joy? What about levity? Like it makes men, you know, relegated toward huge washes of cathartic grief that then enable them to function in the rest of society, as opposed to just being much more Catholic about it in the root sense of the word Catholic, that, that, that mythopoetry poetry is available across the whole spectrum and through all genders. And, and, um, I think it's important not to restrict men to grief as the way in which they become powerful. You know, that, that, that's not very interesting to me, but I understand his historical and he's coming post Vietnam. He's coming, you know, he's coming out of that era and he did incredible work with that. So what, what I'm saying about this black hole that you just talked about within yourself. I, I would like to say that, that that is not inherently male. In other words, that is a learned thing. Mm. And I know it because I know it because of the, of my biography that the same organism can be puppeted by culture in ways that are easily defined as essentialist gender. In other words, um, in my past, when I identified as male, I had what I, what I call now a kind of control center where everything would, would come into my control center all kinds of emotions or challenges or, or insoluble dilemmas within relationships and everything would come into the control center first. And then that control center would, would sort of meet out and the, the word meet M E T E distribute is what it means. Would distribute out responses from a kind of rational control center. Like this is what needs to be done here. This is what needs to be reacted to here. This is what needs. And because of my transition, I gave myself permission not to do that anymore. Mm. And to, and now I can't remember it. 
I can't remember living that way. I can't remember having a control center. All I have is experience as it comes at me, and then I respond to it. But that's a construct that was given to me as someone who was trying to identify as male through the, the first part of her life. And and I see it clearly, Ian. I see that the way it dissolved because of the permissions that I gave myself. And and that's the same organism. I'm the same organism. Mm. And and I'm telling you that 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 Oz, it's like an Oz figure of that works like an alternator in a car distributing energy where, you know, he, in the sense where he thinks it's best used. And instead, now in my life, I'm awash and vulnerable directly to experience without the recourse of that Oz figure. And I am sometimes beaten up more by it and sometimes more triumphant and always more engaged in the world and always more um, aware that I'm actually existing. And so if I use my own little, my own little experience, I can say that that place is not an essentialist place. That, that echo, that, that place where I don't know what I'm feeling, that is an accumulation of conditioning and experiences that creates that place. And so the, the notion that that is a fundamental male problem, I think is the wrong way to start. I think once again, that if we were to take boys from the beginning of their lives and and to help them understand that that their organism is a religion of sensitivity that is making them unique in the world, that they wouldn't have that place. That place is a cultural place. It's not, it's not an essentialist masculine place. And what does that mean in terms of working with it, right? That's the question that someone like you, who for whom this is the, one of the major subject of his life and his vocation. What, what does it mean in terms of working with that? Like if, if what Genevieve is saying is true, if this is not an essentialist thing, but it is a reality, what does that mean? And I think it means, um, going past Bly, way past Bly and understanding that, that the cultured male is like one one hundredth of a person. Is one one hundredth of a person. He's like a corpse that's given one or two venues of intensity that he can then em- embrace and try to try to call himself a human. He's one one hundredth of a person. That's why I don't embrace Bly's idea of grief being the one channel because then then he becomes you know three one hundredths of a person. Right? He knows how to open up that channel, but but he's actually dead. He's a he's a piece of 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 meat walking on a skeleton that is dead and, and and he knows it he knows he's dying and and then he's available to all kinds of manipulations so so the work of feeling is is the work of actually exhuming the initial organism of a man like it, mm. there's a beauty there and there's a tenderness and there's a capacity for feeling he's not conditioned by his testosterone i mean i 
I, I don't think this is the time for me to talk about the incredible journey of my own hormones, but I can tell you that that my testosterone helps me cry. You, you know, my testosterone, um, you know, it works in you know my estrogen works in its ways, and but it's not, it is not what people think, right? It's Hamlet in Shakespeare says, "Nothing is, but thinking makes it so," and you know a man may may feel that because he has testosterone dominance that he is aggressive or that he has less empathy than his wife or etc but that's a lie the, the the hormones are are energies that move toward the spirits in the soul and that is what is not taught you know i i am more available to my heart as i as i move into a pattern where I'm, as I mentioned to you in our private conversation, where I'm creating on my own cis female hormones, which is actually allowing some testosterone to come back. I'm not on hormone therapy right now because I'm, my body, I, I began as intersex and my body, um, is, is actually creating a hermaphroditic organism naturally. And so I, I have a, a rather interesting perspective on the relationship of hormones to behavior and to the soul. And I can tell you, I can tell you that, that it is a lie. It is a conditioned lie that men, because of testosterone, are less available to their hearts. They have been duped. Testosterone can be a tonic on tears. And this is where we go back to my theory of Jung. Jung, in my theory, is, is the expressive part. And so, if you want, which I think is dangerous, but if one wants to equate testosterone with youngness, which I think is a mistake, but just in terms of this conversation, then we'd have to say that someone with more testosterone should cry harder. Mm. You see? Because they have a power of expression. And so this is where the conditioning gets totally warped and men are just gerbled automatons of what they're being told about themselves. I mean, what if you were told that your testosterone was the motor of your emotion? What if you were told that from the beginning? Imagine that life. Instead, you're told something totally opposite. But what if you were told your ability is the pitch, right? The pith of feeling that, that the ability to have a sharp pain in your heart is actually related in some ways to testosterone as well as estrogen. What, what if you were told that? Mm. It would change things. And you would probably say, oh, I feel that arrow coming in now because I'm a man. I feel my heart because I'm a man. I feel the weather because I'm a man. You would have that theatrical spirituality going through you. Mm. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm rocked by a number of things you shared. And no. in a good way, I mean that in a compliment. <laughs> in particular, I do want to just return to the control center that you named. Mm-hmm. Um, and having the experience of, of, uh, dissolving that control center, uh, or, or the experience of it. And then the experience of, of, you know, moving beyond and that hits home for me big time. Uh, and in some ways I feel like this is one of the gifts that you carry is the ability to, to reveal back, you know, it's, it's like the idea that the eyeball can't see itself. Mm. Right. And in some ways mm-hmm. recognizing, yeah, like when, when one is in the control center, one doesn't know they're in the control center. Right. You're right. And that's, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing. Like I've, uh, butted up against this many times. And in fact, another interview with a fellow named Philip Shepard, who's an embodiment teacher, 
he does talk about this idea of in culture, how did that happen? The shift away from the belly intelligence to the head intelligence, which I think has this command control dynamic um, within one's own experience. And I feel that, I, you know, immediately when you said that too, I'm like, well, what, why would it be there? At least in terms of my own internal, but you know, can, experience. Can I- Sure. Would you mind? Would you mind if I make a parenthesis there? Sure. Would you mind? Is it okay? Yeah. Be- because, but don't lose the the trajectory of your questioning because I think it's going to be magnificent. But I just have to stop this head belly thing. I mean, I I'm sure this 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 gentleman is supremely intelligent, and I salute him. But it's it, for me. I'm uncomfortable with those binaries. My mind is my head. My mind can learn what my body knows. Like, why is my mind being relegated to a control center and my body being the thonic natural force? Why isn't my mind fecundated already with nature? Why do I have to do that work? of the binary? Why am I setting up that binary relationship that then I have to conquer by becoming more embodied? Why isn't, I mean, the brain is matter, no less than the stomach, no less than the heart, no less than the phallus. Why is it that we make that initial a priori distinction that we then have to work against to get to totalities? I I resist that. Politely, you understand, with deep respect. Mm -hmm. I resist that. And because I, I want my mind to be fecundated with the same flora and fauna that my body is. Hmm. And so I want to give myself more permission than the binary distinction that you just outlined. Hmm. Thank you for that parenthesis. And it, it just strikes me that what is the fear in, in that is in relinquishing the control center. Like that's, I guess where I'm, I'm hmm. at. And for, for me, what comes up is uh, f- well, fear of vulnerability, like feel fear of, uh, I read an essay recently, somebody had sent me online, uh, uh, a man talking about their fear of ridicule as the sort of undercurrent that maintains, in this case, the frame was toxic masculinity. But it's almost like the fear of feeling is the, is, is masked by this fear of, of ridicule. It, the, which is really, you know, the, the fear of vulnerability itself is this willingness to remain sensitive to all of those elements that you spoke to you know the the emotionality the relationality and so i'd really like you said um and i'm hearing it a bit as almost the control center in a way is this kind of like ghost in the machine of patriarchy that is not yeah it's not gender specific although in this culture it is often men who are conditioned into that control center sort of unawares and then don't know they're in the control center uh, until someone is able to reveal behind the curtain, which is, I think, what you've you've spoken to and, and your experience, uh, perhaps uh, revealed to you. Oh, and 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 when you say some until someone has to reveal it to them, this is the burden of the contemporary female, the burden of the contemporary woman. She is being burdened with with demonstrating to a man that he is in his control center, and she is. <laughs> being asked to take way too much responsibility for that vocation. You know, where, where so many relationship dynamics are the woman saying, get out of your control center because you can't feel me. You can't see me, you know? And he's like, you know, I'm going to try to do that work. Let's go to this, you know, this talk therapy, let's do this together. But, but, but the woman is the one that is suffering because he's in his control center. And she then is, is, 
is being asked terribly unfairly to grieve what he needs to be grieving for himself. And, and that's a problem. I see all the time when I used to do, uh, some kind of counseling in addition to the work that I teach with couples, this would come up all the time and into the point where it became unbearable to me, to be honest, you know, as a trans woman, I had less patience and I would just say, look, you know, this is to the man. I would say, look, this is not about you trying to understand what your woman needs. This is about you realizing that you're one one hundredth of a person. Like you need, you need to be the center of this. It's not about how to cater. It's about becoming alive maybe for the first time. And that's where this story is, you know? <laughs> I know my cat is, is wanting to come inside. She'll just be part of this forever. Um, but she should quiet down. <laughs> I, th- I think what happens, and this is a beautiful, beautiful, uh, circum, well, it, it, it's, it's the way the circle comes back to the initial conversation. When, I mean, your question is, why is the male consciousness afraid of, of getting rid of that control center? Like what's, what's maintaining it? And I think it is a lack of parity, a feeling of a lack of parity. Parity means equality with nature and with experience. In other words, if we go back to what I said about dispositioning ourselves toward natural forces and invisible spiritual voices that are everywhere, and that we live in terms of those things first, and then see ourselves then as moving into another theater called human life, called the polis, right? If we live that way, then we become more... equal with emotion, with the force of emotion, with the force of irrationality, right? The the ocean is irrational. The moon is irrational. The storm that came yesterday and pounded into into these cottonwoods and into my soil, right, decided to get hard and really rain fast for 20 seconds and then to stop. And then the wind blew and then it started to go softer and it moved, right? If I am available to that, as a consciousness, and that is my my connection in life, then when my friend tells me that he is disappointed in me and has been hurt by me, I can feel the wind of him right away. I don't have to say, oh, this is Jack trying to be assertive with me because he feels that he has not been on equal status and he's jealous of my promotion. Right? I don't, my mind doesn't do that. Instead, I feel the wind of him. I feel the rain of him. He comes into my body and I respond to him as weather. And I'm not afraid because I'm already equal to him. I'm equal to what he's giving to me. And I think that's the source that a contemporary male feels maybe like he doesn't have anything but his control. And, and if he gives up his mm-hmm. control, then he's not equal to experience. 
but that's because his body and his organism has been emptied of the powers of real experience. So, quote, again, to use the I, which is potent in a universal way, why am I afraid of emotion if I'm already emotion? Why am I afraid of the irrational if I am already blurring the distinction between my dreams and my waking life and living a totally mythopoetic life thereby? Why am I afraid of anything? Why do I need to control above it if I'm already the thing itself? And that is why the contemporary male holds on to the Oz control room out of an insecurity that he's not equal to actual power through the natural forces, through his imagination. He doesn't have the imagination to actually cope with surrendering to experience. Let me say that again. He doesn't have the imagination to cope with surrendering to experience. And that is what reduces him into somebody who's pushing buttons and distributing responses. I'm going to mm. distribute this response. So, so he has to be on equal terms already with the, the, you wanted to talk about the thonic, with the thonic powers. And the thonic powers are the irrational and uncontrollable powers. But if he sees himself as the one that has to put those things in order, right? Or to give them their proper, you know, four hours on a Saturday on the weekend and then organize them in terms of the rest of the week. If he's the one to do that instead of the thing itself, he is never going to let go of the control center. It's, it won't happen. You can't be a good enough man. See, this is the thing, Ian. You cannot, not you, I don't mean you. I mean one, one cannot be a good enough man. One cannot have enough intentionality to be a good man and actually succeed at that passage. It is something that is beyond intention of being good, of being the proper good man. It is a question of realizing that power has been displaced from sensorium experience and, 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 and availability to mythic power. It has been replaced by agency and leverage. And, and it's getting a person to understand that they need to be turned back into the right proportion that makes him, in this case, equal to the surrender required to be in immediate relationship to experience. Mm. Hmm. What's coming up in me is this um, relation between Apollo and Dionysus. Have you read The Birth of Tragedy? No. Oh my God, that's where that comes from. You see, this is where culture gets sort of seeded by visionaries. That whole distinction that you're making is drawn back to Nietzsche's first book called The Birth of Tragedy. And that's where he is the first person in Western consciousness to make those distinctions between Dionysus and Apollo. And it's really important. He, he himself felt like that wasn't such a good book when he got more into his actual um, theme of the revaluation of values. But I disagree, and most people disagree. It's a very important book, and it's just important for us to know where those basic distinctions come from. Because and it's important. I think you would you would be really happy to read that book. Um, it's quite a quite a strong contribution to to the history of consciousness. Thank you for that. I I feel like this is so much of the almost like the the tip of the sub structure underneath the sand. Let's say, and you know, it's there's that image of say you know walking in the desert and 
and just like kicking a pebble that feels, you know, much harder than the rest and kind of like bending down and suddenly brushing away some of the sand and being like, wait a second, you know, this isn't just a pebble and then brushing more and then realizing, at least this is my feeling of something vast below the surface that mm. has, is being unearthed. Um, of which this inquiry that I've gone on here, I mean, in our conversation and also the podcast at large, I feel has been this sort of um, inadvertently, you know, clearing the debris in some ways or, or, or peeking behind or, or below. And I feel like this has been an incredible contribution to that inquiry. Well, sadly, we are coming to the close of our time today. And I would love to finish perhaps just by inviting a little about your work with the transgender necessity um, which I think is also an organization, but also a, a sort of an advocacy because I feel that the what you've shared here as well is so much of the richness, I feel, of, of the perspective you carry and the experiences you've had. And in many ways, I, I feel at least a, a, a deep gratitude for the ability to, to see the trans experience from a mythopoetic lens. Um, and, and I would love if you might illuminate that a little bit of sort of what is that uh, invitation for others who who maybe do see uh, or or don't understand or haven't or no way to even understand the the trans experience in a way that is actually really deep medicine for this time. I think one of the reasons why I'm so unsatisfying to a lot of trans people is because I I haven't allowed myself to to actually follow the word trans in its significance meaning the passage from one thing to the other instead i see the trans consciousness as being perhaps uniquely capable of articulating the dialogue of our times instead of just making a passage from one binary reality to the next binary reality. I'm not capable of that. And the transgender necessity is a platform. I mean, it's been on hold because of COVID, but I plan on speaking from that platform wherever I'm invited. The transgender necessity is me basically saying that there is something called the transnuminous. This is a term that I've invented. The spiritual understanding of a trans person is perhaps a lightning rod for our time. And the, but only insofar as that kind of trans consciousness is interested in the dialogue, not the resolution. Mm. You know? And so I, I feel that I cannot be a woman in this world without the absolute honesty about what it was to try to be a man in this world. I cannot pretend that I wasn't straining toward that socialization, albeit against my nature. But that has made me, it's the complex that's made me, and it's the complex that I refuse to graduate from entirely because how can one graduate from that many decades? I'm always in a relationship 
right? I mean, I was talking to some dear friends the other day about standing up or sitting down in terms of urination, you know, and, and what it means and, and, you, you know, what is it even, even I, 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 as I've said, I haven't had bottom surgery and have no plans to, but even if I had had it, I'm still formed by, in my case, 45 years of pissing where and when I want and not splattering my ankles. And, and I have to accommodate that in terms of my womanhood. I can't say that that didn't happen. I have to be the complex of that and still maintain the theatrical spirit of my honesty. And the transgender necessity for me is voicing that in such a way that people will become more courageous about the complexities that they harbor naturally. Beautiful. I feel deep gratitude for our time today. Oh, me too. Me too, Ian. Thank you so much for, for hosting me. Thank you to go back to the beginning for the, the confidence that you have to, to bring a trans woman onto a, uh, a podcast entitled The Mythic Masculine. It shows that you have a lot of confidence in what you're doing. And I think it's really, really important work. And thank you so much for having me. Beautiful. Wow. You help me because you're not demanding certitude. You're actually asking for language that satisfies your own complexity. That's what I feel you were doing. And, and that makes the conversation what it was because I would have resisted, you know, at every point you trying to get me to platform myself, you know, because you needed that, but you don't need it. You actually are in the wilderness of it. And, and that's why I think it was such a good conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join The Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash network to learn more.